I'm KCT, and this is Going Up North, the podcast where I take interesting people out on the ice to try their hand at a family tradition, spearfishing. While we wait the hours it may take for the opportunity to spear a northern, we'll shoot the shit, have some laughs, tell our stories, and hopefully go home with one in the bag. This week, my guest is Dr. Anton Troyer, professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, author, speaker, historian, and a real joy to talk to you. Talk about sports, education, history, power, and politics. I had a great time out there learning from this guy, so I'm really excited to share with you. Let's get right into it. You guys, are we jigging too for perch and stuff, or are we just gonna I, for uh, some northerns here? Yeah, I typically just try to you know spear northerns. Okay, or, that's cool. But I got a I got a rod, so yeah, that's right. I, one of the things I like about or found fascinating about just spearing in general is, you know, when you cut a little hole to fish through, it's like blind hope that you ever catch anything. Yeah. But when you can see. You know, you oh look, there's a perch or a walleye or whatever. I can throw a line down and try to catch it. Yeah. Um, and just this perspective was so yeah. game changing, I guess, to me mm-hmm. that I don't even really do much fishing anymore, other than out here. Mm. I did some early ice fishing beginning of December. I walked out just actually past the house here. Mm. Actually, did pretty good one night. Caught a couple walleyes. And nice. You live right in town. Uh, yep, I grew up just like three blocks, no, two blocks from here, uh-huh. so I spend a lot of time there, still. <laughs> so did you grow up spearing, or just something you learned along the way, or? You know, we've always fished, I probably a lot more summer fishing than ice fishing in the winter, but we've, yeah, I guess it's been kind of part of what we've done. I was kind of, I mean, I've been curious about a lot of this stuff, but. How would, like traditionally, before, I mean, we use a chainsaw. How right. how would, like, you maintain a hole through the ice, like, I guess, pre-industrialization or pre-contact? Oh, this is just a lot more hard work, I think. People would chop a hole with an axe, and it'd be rough, and they'd, you know, have to maintain it. Although, Ojibwe people dark house speared, so, you know, they had knowledge of how to do that, but... Yeah, and I, you know, even when you're looking just 300 years ago, the temps are colder than they are now, and uh, it's kind of like a mini ice age. Sure. So, uh, yeah, like I was reading Zebulon Montgomery Pike, he's like the first American in Minnesota, so like in 1805, he was trying to drive teams of horses up the Mississippi River in the middle of the winter, and uh, got stuck around St. Cloud, and uh, had to, you know, kill and eat the horses okay. and proceed on snowshoes. So, like, snowshoes were required, not just, like, a recreational gotcha. curiosity. That also says that the Mississippi River was frozen every winter from here all the way down through Iowa. No enough way. where people could drive horses up the, the river, you know what I mean? Yeah. So then imagine what, like, when snowshoes were required to get from point A to point B, it was just not realistic to travel on foot any, or Holy cow, what they must have dealt with chopping a hole through the ice. Yeah, no, yeah, that's crazy. Yep, and without a, you know, truck and a snow plow just to clear the snow out of the way so you could actually have a Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. yeah, people had to know stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But they worked hard and they suffered too. Yeah, I often think about that out here. If, if this was a survival necessity instead of a recreational activity. Yeah. How much more serious I take it, or you know, like you do a lot of screwing around, or 
not paying attention. Or, but if this was the only thing, you know, if you had to eat... You'd learn fast. Yeah. Or die. Right. Yeah, it's amazing just... I mean, really, even before World War II, most people living in this country, you know, produced a f larger amount of their own food. And uh, now we're so specialized and dependent on everyone and everything else. If they shut off the electricity, a lot of people would starve to death or freeze to death. And uh, you know, we're just dependent on things that didn't even exist a couple generations back. Yeah, that's like a, a byproduct of industrialization. Uh, industrialization, right? Like, yeah, the just, complex capitalism economies of scale. You know, we're ever more specialized. You know. A computer programmer will rely on that one skill set to feed their family, you know, house their family, transport their family. Whereas, you know, a farmer in 1940 produced a fair amount of their own food, built or at least repaired a lot of their own houses and barns and, you know, stuff like that. And so now, yeah, ever more specialized. Even the way somebody farms now, it's computers true so you're from around here right Le leech lake yeah did you grow lake. up here yeah so my family's um from bina okay and i grew up mainly in this area so i um actually didn't live in bina very long a little bit and then uh, kind of in between cast lake and bemidji my father had acquired a piece of property it had actually been taken in a tax forfeiture in the 1940s or 50s, and then uh, he got it in the 1950s. He was the only guy who put in a bid and got a letter back saying, yours is the only bid, but it's not even enough to cover the delinquent taxes. Can you find a couple hundred extra dollars? <laughs> and so uh, he did, and, uh, you know, basically it had been a virgin white pine forest there, Okay. And uh, clear-cut and turned into farm fields by the time he got it. So he just started planting trees, and now it's it's a big pine forest all over the whole property. Changed the whole landscape and the ecosystem. Hmm. So that's where I grew up. Okay. Yep. And then I uh, went to high school in Bemidji, and there were a few years where I actually lived in Washington, D.C. when I was young. Yeah, and so we kind of had some varied experiences there. Sure. I've only been there once, and it was in the summer, and it was awful. Yeah, it's a concrete <laughs> swamp. Yep. Steamy, hot, concrete swamp in the summer. It's brutal. So I was thinking about this when I read um, uh, when I read Warrior Nation. Mm. So the, like, corner piece, uh, upper red, yeah. that got stolen... Yeah. I mean, like everything else, right? But um, is there like a line on the lake, so to speak? Or like is that access point give access to the entire lake? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Um, like the way the jurisdictional issues are working up there now. Um, I mean, obviously there's a line where the reservation boundaries are drawn that transects the water pretty much if you you know for a non band member 
who gets access to the lake up at Washkish, they'll have be able to fish wherever on Upper Red Lake, but um, the tribe does have jurisdiction on the entire reservation, and so it'll be enforced if somebody goes on to Lower Red. Gotcha. Has there ever been an effort to, let's say now on the ice, right? Like, you could draw that line, right? Yep. I mean, has there been ever been an effort or like a... Just to me, at some point, I might just say, well, I'm going to go up there and draw the line. <laughs> and say, this is where the reservation starts. Yeah. You know, I, if, if you want your corner, go play in your corner. Yeah. I think for the, you know, the tribe is, has... Um, been pretty firm about enforcing their sovereignty and there have been some interesting tests like somebody landed a float plane on lower red lake and the tribe confiscated it and you know said if you want this back you can come to tribal court and see what we can do you know and there have been things like that so people usually don't push that line too much and you know the tribe has not been onerously um, you know, standing at the edge of the line for anybody who puts a toe across it necessarily. But I think if somebody were egregiously violating their sovereignty, then I think they would have something to say or do. And, you know, the resorts up in Washkish want their patrons to have a good experience. So they say, hey, go here. We've got some fish houses set up for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by the the draw that that lake has. Like, I was a kid when the crappie boom, so to speak, was happening. Oh, yeah. And people were just nuts about it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And I, I never understood. I never went... I mean, I guess maybe I was up there once, but I don't remember. And just the... I don't know, the way that people would talk about it. Because I lived by Mille Lacs, too, for a while. Yeah. And just... I, like, I get it, you want to make money, and that's your livelihood and everything, but, like, just the way that whole community, and sometimes up here it seemed like, too, would talk about, like, the tribe as some issue, and it's like, God, it's not really, you know, say, you know, everyone's involved, you know, and, like, just, like, is it really that important to you to go drive all the way up to Red Lake and catch a couple of walleyes, you know, like, when, you know what I mean, when, it, when they shut down fishing, it was like, people just lost their brains, mm-hmm. and then... Now that it's open again, like, I mean, I guess, like, I just don't understand. You know, I mean, I it always just kind of, like I say, fascinated me the way that people were so passionate about that lake that really had no stake in the game, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just like you couldn't say, what do white people think about anything, right? Abortion, good or bad. Right. It's not that simple. And it's like that for Native people, too. You know, you get a whole variety of opinions on any given subject. It's right. not that simple. But I think, it's, I think it's hard for people outside of a place like Red Lake to really understand how this works for them. But you can't be a Red Laker and not be connected to Red Lake. You can be an American, you know, and you can move from Wisconsin to Minnesota and it'll change your geography, but it doesn't change your identity. But if a Red Laker has to leave Red Lake 
it impacts their identity. And so for somebody in a place like Red Lake, the connection to the place is huge. And also, like, Americans have a largely a historical experience. So, like, except for indigenous people, everybody else has some sort of history where they came five generations back or whenever from a different country. And there's a process where they disconnected from their mother land and from their mother tongue. And, you know, there's a difference between being a fifth-generation German immigrant to Minnesota, which is about a third of Minnesota, you know, and being a Deutschlander. And, you know, the biology is only one part of the identity. But for somebody in Red Lake, you know, where their relatives have been buried in the same place longer than America's been a country, then it's harder if there is something that is getting in the way of the connection to that place or life way. And also, you know, the American way of dealing with everything is usually short-term and short-sighted. I mean, it's like the political election cycle and the pendulum between Democrats and Republicans and, you know, and uh, me and my career or, you know, the pipeline and the immediate job that's going to happen while it's being built, not so much thinking about the long-term impacts. So when you look at like fishing, you know, I realize a lot of people are like eager to blame the Indians for some sort of environmental or fish issue, but you got to remember the glaciers retreated from this part of the world 11,000 years ago and there have been native people living here ever since who have sustainably harvested these resources without any negative impact on the number of fish in the lake or the sustainability of access to them or the health of the aquifer or the vitality of the ecosystem all those problems happen when everybody else showed up and so it's just so ironic that everyone wants to blame the Indians because there's less fish in Lake Mille Lacs. Right, right. When it is obvious, like you can even look at the harvest levels in a place like Mille Lacs. And, you know, over 94% of the fish taken there are taken by white folk. Mm-hmm. It's sport fishing. And then they're like, all oh, those Indians. Right. Because they want to put a net out. Mm-hmm. Or something like that, you know? Yeah, and I remember, like I say, when I was living there, it was a huge deal. It was like the first year they were going to shut it down. Mm-hmm. And the, like, even before any negotiation or talk with the DNR started, the tribe came out and said, like, we'll sacrifice 70% of our heart, or whatever the number was. Yeah. You know, they were like, well, yeah, like, we understand <laughs> that we need to not be taking so many fish. So, you know, they cut their number way back voluntarily, and people are still like, you know, like you say, blaming them. Like, well, how can that even be? You know? Like, yeah. Like, what are you talking about? And I've seen, I've seen firsthand more illegal fish taken by fucking white people than I have anything. Yeah. You know? Like, and that's like a mentality that, you know, goes, I think, hand in hand with that. Like you say, you blame the natives and the, now we can't take so many fish. So whatever fish I catch, I'm going to keep, even if I'm not supposed to. You know? Like, it's mm-hmm. a really selfish 
entitled, like you said, short-sighted view, which, yeah, is inherently American, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, and of course you have things like the aquatic invasive species, and, you know, that's doing a lot, having a big impact on the aquifers, too. And people are also very careless about things like that. And so, like, the folks who are rabid about Lake Malax, you know, eventually, as they can only take, you know, many fewer fish, or there's a moratorium where they can take one fish and keep in a certain slot size or whatever, well, then they just go to Leech Lake. And then they bring the zebra mussels up there, which has already happened. And then as that, you know, fishery declines, then they're all going to go to Red Lake. Right. And then sooner or later, it's just a ticking time bomb, they're going to drop zebra mussels in Red Lake, and it'll devastate the fishery. And then they'll go to Lake of the Woods, and they'll do the same thing there. And they'll go up to Great Slave Lake or wherever the hell they have to go. And it will not impact their identity as people who love to fish. But it can be devastating for the identity of people who are Red Lakers, who have to get it from Red Lake. So I was thinking about this too, the boarding school thing. Yeah. So I was thinking about that, like you say, because of the strong geographical ties, it seemed that, you know, you just move kids way away, right? Mm -hmm. To break that tie to like further, really further the like cultural breakdown or assimilation by education or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, was there like any cultural exchange that happened because of that you know does that make sense like you get a bunch of uh kids from all over you know like in a different place and then you know like their tribal identity is so strong but as they like lose that due to the boarding school you know are they exchanging ideas with other kids or like picking up things from that region you know like say a kid from red lake goes to kansas to go to a boarding school like does that make any sense? Is there any yeah. like history of? Like, yeah, there is. Um, you know, actually, some of the founding members of the National Congress of American Indians went to residential boarding schools together, and some of the founding members of the American Indian Movement were people from different tribes who went to residential boarding schools together. And uh, you know, you can even look at some of the institutional and program development, like. American football, its development was deeply impacted by what happened at Native American residential boarding schools. Jim Thorpe, for example, you know, was a Native guy who went to residential boarding school. And, you know, it, I think the evolution of the, that particular game and its visibility in American society was deeply impacted by his life and experience there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there were huge impacts. And a lot of them were unintended, and uh, most of them were negative, but there were some positive impacts, too. Interesting how this timed out. I just thought of this, actually. I was on Twitter last night, and there was a picture from the Cleveland Indians yeah. that it said, I've never met a Native American that was offended. Shut up, was basically the tweet. Uh-huh. And somebody like took the screenshot and removed the offended part so just said i've never met a native american it's <laughs> like i fixed your tweet like chief wahoo's fucking offensive <laughs> it's like, and this 
again, like you were saying, like the visibility <clears throat> of that, you know, so it's football, so to speak, and then like yeah. the Redskins is still an ongoing. It's like, oh. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that's one of those topics too, where you'll find, you know, some variation in opinions and responses from different native people. So I'm one native guy. So I can only speak for myself. Got a house full of Indians. I don't even know what they're thinking half the time, <laughs> you know, but, uh, at the same time, you know, that one's got to go away eventually, you know. I mean, I, I've got bigger fish to fry, so to speak. Like, we have some really serious economic, political, health issues, you know, that I think are even more directly impactful on Native people. But at the heart of that whole mascot thing is the willingness of many Americans to just, you know, dehumanize, objectify their fellow citizens for their own private and personal pleasures rather than any meaningful or positive impact. And I think that's really unfortunate. You know, you, you could look, for example, in country music, the Gretchen Wilson. She's got a song, Redneck Woman. I'm a redneck woman, I ain't no high-class broad. Does that mean I get to call every white woman I meet redneck woman? You know? Right. Probably not. Right. It, might it be offensive to somebody? Probably. And can I say, well, shut up, because Gretchen Wilson's down with that. Right. You know? And, you know, you can find a Native person who'll say, you know what? mascots doesn't bother me at all but that's like finding the Gretchen Wilson song and then calling every white woman redneck woman right right and if you look at the whole you know totality of voices which are not in unison amongst white women some will be like fine and some many more will probably be like not fine you know it's like that with the native population too there are two tribes that actually have sanctioned the use of their names for sports teams. So the, uh, you know, Meskwaki, the Sac and Fox out of Tama, Iowa, have given permission for the use of their chief's name, the Blackhawks. And then the Florida Seminole have given permission for the use of their tribe's name for the Florida Seminoles. Yeah, but isn't there like some educational caveat to that as well? Yep, but you know, you can compare that to over 100 different tribes that have passed formal resolutions that have repudiated the use of any native imagery or mascots at all. And so that alone just tells you 100 tribes specifically taking legal action to say, don't do this, versus two who said, okay, but only under special circumstances. And they did, none of them have sanctioned Redskins, um, you know, or Indian or Indians. It was a specific tribal name or chief's name. So I, uh, I think... You know, those voices are pretty clear. Also, big national organizations, National Congress of American Indians, which represents all of the federally recognized tribes in the United States, passed resolutions and provided guidance saying, please don't use our imagery or names for sports teams and mascots. And, you know, to me, that speaks pretty loudly. Also, these things are controversial, right, regardless of what you feel about it. So if you're going to use that mascot, you're going to put controversy at the center of your sporting activity. 
And to me, the beauty of something like football is that it can actually be a national pastime that can unite people. But if you put controversy in the middle, well, it's not going to do that. And you're actually just starting to see some of the impacts of, you know, racism in football on the bottom line and the number of people who are viewing things. And, uh, you know, maybe it'll actually get some attention because of that. And it's not just the mascots, it's, you know, national anthems and kneeling and all kinds of other things too. But, um, yeah, I think this stuff needs to be put to rest. And, and bear in mind too, most of the native mascots, um, there's some op big profile ones, you know, high profile ones for um, professional sports, Washington Redskins and Cleveland Indian, Cleveland Indians, things like that. But most of them are for high schools. Mm. And somewhere in like the mission statement for high schools should be something that says something about like education and an inclusive learning environment. And it's pretty obvious that these things are like putting a native mascot at the center of a school is inimical to the mission. Mm. That it's going to make it harder to provide an inclusive learning environment and it's going to make it harder to provide meaningful education. And so it's like undermining the very purpose for having a K-12 school. And you got all these schools where like people, you know, the common defenses people have for mascots are things like we're doing it to honor native people because Indians are badass warriors, just like Spartans and Trojans and everything else. And I won't even dispute that that was the intent, but the reality is <clears throat> the hometown fans are for the most part doing caricatures and playing Halloween rather than trying to like really understand and honor anybody mm. and that the opposing fans always necessarily defile their opponents mascots in the name of team spirit so you have all these high schools where it's the opposing fans who are saying things like hey indians get ready to leave in a trail of tears round two hi hawaii hi hawaii and so how's a minor child you know supposed to feel respected and supported in that educational environment. It's just hard for me to imagine how that actually works positively for them. Just not worth it. Yeah, and then it sort of, like you said, like dehumanizes and like engenders this objective right. idea in all the non-native kids, you know, like people that it then just have thing. like that, yeah. like, um, yeah. People become a thing or a whole group of people become the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, <laughs> you, you told a story in the book about, uh, the guy at the airport or whatever. And like the girl being like, are you all native Americans? And he was like, yeah, we rode a team of horses and then yeah. got on some dog sleds and like, oh, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> being able to blindly, like, believe that story yeah. is in part, like, never having interacted with anything other than, like, the base level right. type of, like you say, the 
noble warrior stereotype or like the yeah we get imagined a lot and understood very little yeah and it's, it's just kind of crazy how unwilling people are to kind of recalibrate their thinking when confronted with you know a difference of of opinion or experience it's like holy crap if i was doing something my whole life that I just thought was normal and then realized that it was like deeply offensive to somebody like holy crap I don't want to be an offensive person right I'll change that you know absolutely yeah that's like growth and development as like a human being yeah. yeah and it's like this might not be a great example but it's widely accepted that like you shouldn't do blackface, right? Like, yeah. The fact that you know you can dress up with like, you know, go to a Chiefs game with like a grocery store war bonnet and right red face and right. Like not see how you know it's like, yeah, humans are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I was. Like in this really awful and weird sort of new political climate that we're living in, uh, I was struck by the section of the book where you talk about, I don't remember his first name, Cole, right? K-O-H-L. And like, is it enough like, that seemed to come down to, like, again, you know, racism, but is, like, keeping your racist shit to yourself, like, or, like, like, is that enough? <laughs> like, does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, I feel, yeah. like, I mean, it's sort of been borne out in evidence that, you know, white supremacy hate crimes are on the rise because those people feel emboldened by this, right. you know. No, it's not enough. Um you know, I, I guess, you know, in a way we could thank Donald Trump for pulling the mask off and showing that ugly underside a little bit more visibly. But, you know, I think if you take the really long view, having a democracy is a pretty new form of government in the history of the world. If people have been ruled either by some sort of smaller insular tribal structure or some sort of dictatorship or monarchy for most of human history. And if democracy as a way of structuring a society is actually going to work, when you have a, it gets a big test when you have a larger society and you have a more diverse society. And everybody wants somebody to push down, push out, ostracize, scapegoat, whatever. It's what was happening in Weimar, Germany, you know, uh, leading up to World War II when Hitler was elected, democratically elected to power. And I think it's dangerous to play politics of exclusion hate 
drawing upon racial and religious fault lines in society as ways to demonize whole groups of people. And um, I think taking the long view, aside from who is going to win the smallest political battle, is there going to be a wall or isn't there? You know, those are kind of small in the grand scheme of time, but the bigger things are, can democracy work for everybody? Uh, and to do, to, to succeed, figuring out how to get along and how, how to have the institutions be bigger than one political group's um, platform is going to be really, really important. And some of the things that are really dangerous for our democracy or the fact that it's just not really representative of the American polity. Like, almost all of our senators are millionaires. So it doesn't represent the economic kaleidoscope we have in America, where it would be, if it was representative, you know, then less than 5% of them would be millionaires. And that's just not what's happening. And so that says our system is not truly representative for anybody. And I think there are people of every political persuasion who are deeply frustrated by that. But yeah, it's, it's a scary and, and dangerous time. And I think, you know, what we can see happening is that, um, and, and interestingly, the folks who are most loath to say things like, we have a system of oppression in America. Or that, you know, we have provided disproportionate benefit to white Americans versus other Americans. The people who are most, you know, uh, resistant to those ideas provide its greatest validation. Because out of the same mouths, you will hear things like, you know, we're going to flip roles between who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. White people are going to be the minorities. They're going to get beat up on. They're going to be pushed down. And what that says is we do have an oppression dynamic in that they're afraid of losing position, power. And I think it's important to point out unearned power, unearned position, power and position given by virtue of the color of one's skin rather than contributions, efforts, and earnings. And that's oppression. And it's just unfortunate that not all, not even most, but some white Americans are so afraid that we're going to flip roles between who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed that they're using position, power, politics to preserve this basket of unearned privileges. Let's make it harder for brown people to be here. So not just what's happening with the southern border, and there's a whole different discussion to be had about immigration, but, you know, whether people are Hispanic or Muslim or whatever, you know, or the use of the criminal justice system as a way to disenfranchise people from participating in politics. And each of those things can be discussed on their own merits. It's part of a basket of things. Make it harder for people to vote. 
like in North Dakota just during the past election cycle, ramrodded through a requirement that people have proof of North Dakota residency printed on the identification cards that were used when people registered to vote, knowing that there was no residential statement placed on tribal identification cards anywhere in North Dakota because people only could have delivery to a P.O. box. And it was a, an effort to disenfranchise a whole group of voters who were there longer than all the white voters, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, for a political objective. And so those kinds of things, I think, are really deeply disturbing and anti-democratic. And I think, personally, we should just take all of that energy instead of fighting over who gets to be the oppressor and who has to be the oppressed, just fight oppression. Because for most of the lives, for most Americans who are alive today, there's not even going to be a racial majority group in America. We're going to have to figure out how to get along and do things cooperatively and think of greater good and stuff like that. It's just very unfortunate that a lot of Americans don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, they're, they're setting themselves and, and their children and grandchildren up for a lot of strife and animosity and angst and stress. Um, and, and I just think that's really unfortunate. And, and not just unfortunate, but it, it can destabilize the system of government that probably has the greatest chance to provide best for their political and economic futures. So they're hurting themselves. Yeah, I was thinking about that in the way there seems to be like, uh, well, I guess in the two-party two system, it's unnecessary and just a foreign concept to most Americans or whatever, but like the concept of coalition building, right? Like, right. And I don't have the perspective to answer, but <clears throat> I mean, I can see a lot of reasons why, right? Like, like you were saying earlier, like the American identity is so much, oh, all of us. And then after us, there's immigrants who are, you know, at various different times, whatever, since us. And it's like, oftentimes, like the native population isn't even considered in that equation. I mean, even right. learning in school, right? Like you get four sentences on the trail of tears and you move on or, you know, like mm -hmm. it's very othering in that aspect. But then again, like I say, as a privileged white person, you, I look at it and think, like you said, you know, flip the system of oppression, but not necessarily, I mean, I'm not saying to do that, but it seems like there is such, you know, if there was any coalition building, say, let's just against the power structure now, right? Against white bullshit America, it would be easy but the way that those all those minority groups interact with each other is so you know different or whatever that like it makes it almost impossible right it's like it mm -hmm. seems like everyone's fought for like their little corner or whatever they've gained and they don't want anybody else to be involved in that or whatever it seems like i don't know it just seems yeah odd i mean and what 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 can i do yeah but yeah and honestly i don't think like White people are a, the problem, you know. White supremacy is a problem, but that's different. Right. And 
I do think, you know, you're right that, uh, you know, there needs to be a lot more cooperative work and bridge building and communication. And when we can, anybody from any group can hold up somebody from another group when they have nothing to personally, financially gain in terms of leverage, then, then we're going to be getting somewhere positive. And, you know, it, I think just about everybody has some sort of unearned advantage. And it's very difficult for Americans to see and admit that they won their fruits on an uneven playing field. But I see this all the time. Like my wife is from the Swedish American tribe, so to speak. Uh, and we notice this stuff all the time. Like I'm a brown native man and she's a, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed white woman. And when we go out to eat, for example, they will always place the check next to me about 85% of the time. And about the other 15% of the time, it goes in the middle of the table. I've never seen them just hand her the check. Hmm. And so there is this assumption that because I'm the man, I've got the fat wallet, I handle the bills, and I'm the responsible one with money. And so whether I want it or not, whether I've earned it or not, whether it's right or not, and it's not, there's this assumption that, you know, if she's wearing the panties, I've got the money. And that's a sexist patriarchy thing that operates very deeply in America. And so there'll be this assumption about my power and privilege. And that's just one dimension of the patriarchy that we experience. There are many others too. So I might not want to benefit personally from patriarchy. It bothers me, but I benefit whether I want to or not. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad human being, but I benefit. So the question isn't like, how do we completely eradicate all elements of patriarchy so that I can sleep well at night knowing that I like have not benefited from having a penis. That's probably not super realistic, although we should strive for that, right, as a society. But how do I take the unearned advantage I have, being born a man, and how do I wield my unearned advantage responsibly and honorably to the benefit of our society, not just using it to leverage more advantage for my personal gain at the expense of women. And that's not easy to answer, but like I work at a university, I chair search committees where we're hiring people. One of the little things I do is I make sure at least half the people on every search committee are women so that women aren't just always the minority in the power dynamics deciding who should be hired. So that's one little thing that I do, but that's not enough. You know, and so I should always be searching for ways and as much as possible, be willing to surrender the microphone if they're handing me the microphone 
or leadership where it makes sense to do so, so that women have an empowered place. And it works the same way with every other ism and dynamic in our society. There are lots of white folk who, even if they are financially disadvantaged, will receive great privilege just by virtue of race. And it might not feel like privilege, but the privilege of having your race widely represented in the body of people who are in power. Like when I go operate in this town in Bemidji, the bankers, most of the police officers, the judges, the lawyers, university officials, the teachers, the superintendents, like they're white. And that doesn't mean they're bad people at all, but that's who's in charge. And so, you know, if you're white and you're looking for who's in charge, you're looking for somebody in your racial affinity group, you know? And, you know, you will get the benefit of the doubt, like, you know, even if it's just like a police officer who's looking around the dinner table every night at their white wife and white kids. And then they go out on the job and a white person commits a crime because they're in the same racial affinity group. They won't say, ah, oh, white people, right? They'll be yeah. like, oh, this is a bad actor. We're going to get him some help or we're going to get him some punishment or whatever. But if it's a person of color who they don't see every day around the dining room table and things like that, it's a little bit easier to say, oh, those people, man, why the hell are they doing that to themselves? Right? Mm -hmm. Which is how people often talk about those Red Lakers or whatever. I've, I, I mean, I've, as I've grown up, I've noticed that and it drives me nuts. I mean, it's just, it's just straight up racist. You know, I mean, be it Red Lakers or, you know, black people or any person, right? Like, yeah. and it's, it's like, what, what, you yeah. can say the same thing, you know, it's like, it's all a microcosm. Like someone said, someone said something today, the other day to me about like conservatism in the military. And I was like, well, why is everybody in the military conservative? Like, I mean, the numbers can say whatever they are, but it's just a microcosm of society. There's gay people, there's black yeah. people, there's white people, there's liberals, there's Democrats, there's Republicans. Right. There's people who are going to, you know, perpetrate war crimes. There's people who aren't. There's people who are going to stand up to those people. You can say, and, you know, given the vast majority of the number of white people in this country, like, a lot of them are shitty, <laughs> you know? So, like, you can't, I, I, it just drives me nuts. Where, like, the, you know, you're, like you say, the one example of, oh, this brown person, that must be how they all are. It's just, like, the yeah. most... <laughs> yeah, and you know that's the other thing too is you know people are used to looking at individual behavior, like you, know, you think about dominant values or features of American culture, and we're very individualistic. So that's why it's one of the reasons that's hard to talk about race is that you know people say, "Hey, there's racism operating in our society," and they're worried that someone's going to accuse them of being a racist. And that fear of judgment is really pervasive in American culture, too. And so they say, no, there isn't, you know, and they start being defensive. But we're not talking about just individual behavior. The number of, like, KKK and neo-Nazi people in America is really dang small. It's small. But 
the number of people who are impacted by race in America is 100 percent. Yeah, it's, yeah that's... it's just little things like flesh-colored band-aids. They only match one color of flesh. True. Right. Yeah. And it's not because the people selling band-aids hate people who aren't white. They're really just trying to sell band-aids. Right. right? Yeah. Right. They're not like there's not some individual who's a neo-Nazi who's like you know, screw black and brown people. We're not making band-aids for them. On the contrary, they want to sell band-aids to everybody. Right. But if you are a person of color and you're trying to buy flesh-colored band-aids, it sticks out like a sore thumb because. You know, it doesn't match the color of your flesh. Right? And so there's this whole wide array of things. Like, you know, if you go to school and you're white, you get to learn stories about how your people did cool things and helped make the world a better place. And if you're a person of color, not so much, you know? And there are some people trying to change some of that. Like, there's a little civil rights movement, Martin Luther King stuff in there now, you know? Right. And, uh, and there's a few little intrusions, but usually with lots of resistance and with, you know, teachers who are predominantly white who don't feel comfortable talking about it at all. Right. You know, so they're like, oh, gosh, Christopher Columbus, if I say this, the Italians might get mad at me, and if I say that, the Indians, they might get mad at me. So what am I going to say? As little as possible. And that just perpetuates the sense of alienation, marginalization, disempowerment, you know. And for somebody who's native, for example, where you have this history of residential boarding schools and, you know, being invisible or imagined, and then it just feels like the continuation of an age-old assault on your very way of being. You're not supported. It's not okay to be you. And then... People react when they feel assaulted with those old caveman responses, fight or flight. So all the school officials are scratching their heads going, how come we have this truancy problem with these native kids? And it's like, flight? And how come we're having these discipline problems with these native kids? Like, fight? And so interestingly, like, you know, for some of these like indigenous language immersion schools, they really don't have the truancy problems or the discipline problems that they do in the mainstream. Which says that when people are getting to learn about who they are, they're not feeling assaulted by what's not being taught and they're engaged with their education on a whole different level. Did I see a article about uh, Red Lakes trying to make a Immersion school up there? Yeah, they're trying to get going with... And they do have an early childhood program at Red Lake. I also found that interesting. Towards the end of uh, your book, you talked about um, Anna Gibbs. Yeah. And um, obviously I'm fascinated with the you know documentation of things. And to me, I was just under the assumption like, yeah, you know, you could do a lot of things, you know, record things and whatever. And you made sort of the point that those experiences in order to be truly appreciated and truly carried forward need to be lived in and its whole authenticity. Mm-hmm. How do you like balance that dichotomy as someone who like realizes that, but also has spent a lot of time documenting, right? I mean, like you kind of wrote the book on it. Yeah. It's tough. You know, um, I don't think there's an elder from any group who doesn't shake his or her head and go, Oh, kids these days. 
right? Like there's this tension about cultural continuity and change. And there are benefits both ways. Aside from our current political climate in America, I mean, that's kind of what's at the heart of conservative versus progressive ideals is what things are important to preserve and keep the same and what things need to change. And there are cases to be made both ways. And it's not simple because things are gained and things are lost both ways. Um, and, you know, in a native context, certainly with Ojibwe people here, this is a big tension that we experience. Like, on the one hand, we get to change over time. Like, we don't have to be stuck, you know, whatever, in a wigwam wearing moccasins to be authentically native, right? We can be modern and be native. At the same time, on the flip side of that is how much can a people change and like still be the same people? And at some point, you know, white immigrants quit being Italian or German or whatever and became Americans and the identity shifted even if the biology was the same. And most people have like a complicated mathematical equation for their biology anyways. So those things provide a lot of tension. And, you know, you can imagine how, how tense and tough that is just in mainstream society and imagine being in a cultural enclave surrounded by this sea of rapidly changing mainstream society. So the pace of change in native communities is very pronounced. And you know, I have strong feelings both ways, like on the one hand, you know, and I've spent a lot of my personal and professional time engineering change, you know, like our language is an oral language and I've been building a literary tradition for this oral language. On the one hand, that's, that's change, right? To textualize and write the stuff down, to record it and preserve it. And, you know, I've, I've gotten crap for that. Like, I even had one elder, a good fluent speaker, was like, that stuff's a waste of time. You shouldn't be doing that. You know, if someone's going to learn the language, it's got to start in a home. And I said, I know that most of our, like, living good speakers learned it as their first language in the home. But you do realize that in this area, all of our fluent speakers are past the age of having and raising children. So if it has to start in the home, what you're telling me is it's never going to start. And I find that unacceptable. So we're going to have to do something differently. And, you know, to be an authentic American doesn't mean you have to wear a wig and ride a horse-drawn carriage. Like, you can change over time. And we're going to have to be able to modernize what we do. I suppose you could try to go Amish, like create a community, seal yourself off and try to freeze the culture in time. But the, frankly, the Amish really struggle with that. They lose people every year. It's difficult, even financially, like, you know, they still have to pay taxes right? and own land and be independent and self-sufficient, produce all of their own food. You know, even a tribal government, you know, in spite of the many positive dimensions of sovereignty that are there, are applying for grants from the U.S. federal government and things like that. So, like, 
it's not a totally independent nation that's producing all of its own resources, you know? And, you know, so we need to modernize, but at the same time, you know, a lot can be lost if we just embrace that. Um, and we end up just doing anthropology or, you know, something like that rather than living our culture. So, you know, at the same time that I do that and, and see the value of that, I think it's also important that we um, speak to the values, beliefs, and also the ways of learning that were given to us previously. So some of the stuff I do with my kids, I've got nine kids, um, you know, it, it would be easier, like I have a university job and I write books and I travel, you know, I could just like buy all my food, right? That'd be easier. Right. But we run a sugar bush, so we make maple syrup and sugar. We do a lot of hunting and, um, you know, we garden and we pick berries and we fish and, you know, things like that. And my kids produce about maybe ten to $12,000 worth of food every year. Jeez. And they eat all of it. Right. You know, and on the one hand, yeah, that does help out financially, but, um, more importantly for me is it helps keep us recognizable to our ancestors and like um it builds their confidence like they can do something so if i got to go somewhere you know they can haul the sap for the sugar bush and they can you know they know the science and the art for how to cook it down into food and they could proceed without me if they want you know and uh and that helps them feel confident, you know, and that self-assuredness then translates into other things. So they, you know, can be successful in school and life and, you know, keep their head held high or whatever. So it's not necessarily that like maple sugar production is the most marketable skill for a resume. So you can be a computer programmer. It's more like so they can know who they are and someone who knows who they are is going to be more successful in the world, you know. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, so I believe in those things. And I would love to say that, like, we produce all of our own food and we get our electricity off the grid. And, you know, like, I mean, those would be like goals. Right. Uh, but rather than where we're at. Um, and frankly, it's fun, you know, and, and, um, and you know, I think keeps uh, me, and I just speak for myself, you know, I feel more connected to the place that I live, you know, and our ancestors. And when I'm doing something like that, even like sitting here fishing, you know, think about all the thousands of years people have done this right here, you know, and it's, uh, and that, that's a good feeling. Yeah, definitely. Get him. Last minute action. Did we get it? You'll just have to tune in next week and find out as we continue our quest for fish and keep talking about all kinds of interesting stuff. As always, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Give us a like and a share. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter. I'm KCT, and this is Going Up North. All right!